Hey, what's up, guys? Good morning. Glad you're joining us today. We're going to dig into the Word here in just a moment, like we always do. Uh, but this just itself isn't church for us. So if you want to join us for church, we meet tonight. Uh, if you're interested in doing that, you can hit us up on social media, uh, our website. Send us a message. Uh, we'll get back to you with information, location, that kind of thing. We'd love to have you. Uh, we're here in Tempe. Uh, so pretty much anything in the East Valley, uh, if you're looking to uh, uh, find somewhere to meet, uh, looking for a church to be a part of, or just curious what this is all about, uh, hit us up and come on over. We'd love to have you we sit around and uh, uh, have some discussion, talk about the Word, spend some time praying together, uh, usually have some food, those kinds of things. So we'd love to have you, so come on over. But right now, uh, we're going to uh, jump into the Word. And so we're going to continue our series in Second Corinthians, which we've titled A Cross-Shaped Life. And we've settled on kind of a theme verse uh, for this series, and it's actually out of First Corinthians. Uh, and the verse is First Corinthians chapter 2, verse 2. Paul says, For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. This was the driving force behind everything Paul did. Uh, last week, uh, Dave shared with us uh, about Paul preaching Christ, living Christ, and finding his identity in Christ alone. There was nothing else. Paul had settled on this to know nothing else except Jesus Christ and him crucified. So we're going to pick up today basically exactly where we left off last week. So we'll be in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 23. Uh, and this is a continuation of thought in so many ways from last week's text. And so I want to do just kind of a quick review uh, and call to mind a few things as we uh, as we prepare to dive into this. And so if you look back at the beginning of this chapter, you see uh, obviously there's a greeting which is common for Paul and his letters. Uh, but almost immediately, he turns then to this treaty, if you will, on comfort and suffering, or maybe comfort for the suffering. Uh, now, it's been my experience, both a, a lived experience and observed experience, that the greatest teams, the strongest bonds, the most lasting relationships are often born out of one thing, common suffering, a shared experience of suffering, people suffering together. And they grow together when they do that in ways that are almost indescribable. It's hard to really explain. Uh, you can, of course, have lasting relationships, strong bonds, uh, uh, great teams uh, through shared experiences of joy and good things. But uh, there's just something about doing hard things together with other people that, that draws us close together. And so Paul begins this letter by, by calling attention to the shared suffering or affliction that uh, both he and the, the church at Corinth had experienced. Some of those individually, some of those that they share together as one goes through something. And he says this in verse 7 of chapter 1. He says, Our hope for you is unshaken, for we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. And this is not simply a, a shared bad day. Uh, it's not a, a one-time thing, but but suffering that both parties have experienced due to their faith in Christ, which only strengthens this bond all the more. So it's, it's beyond just enduring something difficult or hard, a hardship of some kind. But they're doing so because of their union in Christ. And this, this strengthens them. This draws them together. Uh, Paul uh, begins here to call to mind the depths of their relationship. He's working to uh, engender in them some compassion. He's trying to soften their spirit because at some point in this letter, and you'll see even today his tone will shift just a little bit. Paul's going to address some really difficult things. And so Paul's intention, he, he doesn't want to come across as somebody distant, as somebody who's unconcerned, who's unconnected, as, as, a, as a dictator who's just declaring decrees. 
but he, he wants them to, to see and to feel and to understand that he's a brother in Christ. That they are a family in Christ. Uh, a relationship similar to a father and his children. And so he's reminding them of this. He goes really to great lengths of this. We saw this last week as well. We ended in verses 21 and 22. Uh, and they say this, And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ. And Dave pointed out to us as he was teaching that, that this first us that we see here is, is Paul, Timothy, Silas, and maybe any other traveling companions that they had uh, in that sense. But those three especially. So that's the us. And then the you is the church in Corinth. And so he continues on. He says, uh, and has anointed us. And now this us changes. This us is all of them. So it was us and you. We're united now through Christ. And now we're just kind of one. Now it's all of us. So it has anointed us. God has anointed us. And who has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. Paul is, is, is going to really great lengths here at the beginning of this letter. As he's even addressing some issues to remind them to, to, to get them to reflect on the experiences that they had. So that they understand how, how deep this relationship goes. That they remember and reflect on the times that they've experienced together. And, and knowing that what brings them together is Christ. So there's no getting away from this. Um, it's an eternal relationship that was established by God. And so they're in this together. There's no getting away from that. Now, as we get ready to look specifically at our text today, uh, it's going to be... Chapter 1, verse 23. Let me, let me call to mind just a couple other things. Paul has been addressing a specific issue. Um, someone has called Paul's integrity into question as it relates to his travel plans. And he said that he would be back, that he would be coming back to Corinth. Uh, he intended to, he wanted to, but thus far it hasn't happened. And someone in the congregation, we don't know who, we don't know the, the full extent of it, has been using this scenario as a way to to manipulate the congregation and to, to really damage their allegiance to Paul. So in division in the church and in so doing really undermine the truth that, that Paul has taught them. And so up until this point, Paul has been addressing that. He's been, he's been reminding them of their relationship, the depths of their relationship, their shared experiences, their union with Christ. And he's kind of been clear in the air. Now he's been doing so gently, but with conviction. It really, it'd be like, hey, I told you I was coming. It was my intention to come. I want to come. Hopefully, I'll be able to come at some point. But the Lord has not yet made that happen. And so they're getting real bent on this. And he's saying, I wasn't promising that this was going to happen. So here's where we are. But the Lord has made significant promises to us. And those are the promises that we need to, to really rest ourselves on, that we need to trust in. That if the Lord makes a promise that he was, is, and always will be faithful and capable of keeping those promises. But me not making a travel plan that meets your agenda isn't one of those. And so he's, he's been very gentle about this, but he has uh, with conviction addressed it. He's not shied away from it. And that really brings us to um, our text this week. So we'll begin in chapter 1, verse 23. And I'm just going to read a couple verses to you here at the beginning. Paul says, but I call God to witness against me. It was to spare you that I refrained from coming again to Corinth. Not that we lord it over you, but we work with you for your joy, for you stand firm 
in your faith. Paul's serious about this. Uh, he's, it, this is like a courtroom type setting. I call God to witness against me. The only person who really knows the intent of Paul's heart is God. And the only person who really has the ability or the authority to, to hold Paul accountable if he's lying is God. And so it, it, it's like saying, yes, God is my witness. You hear people say that. Yes, God is my witness. He's saying, I'm calling God to witness against me. So this is significant. It's important. And he does so because what he tells them is, it's kind of difficult to hear. Listen, this didn't benefit me at all by not coming. It wasn't for my benefit, but it was for your benefit. It was to spare you. Now, those are some strong language. Hey, look, I, I could have come and I could have brought the hammer, but I chose not to. The Lord has given me the ability not to, not for my sake, but for your own. So that's a, that's a very challenging statement Paul lays out to him here. But again, he quickly turns around on this. He doesn't backtrack from it. But he says, we're not to lord that over you. Like we could have done that. I could have done that. But that's not what I wanted to do. We, we don't rule over your faith. We work with you. We work for you. We, we work for your joy. Paul is continuing. This is a thread we see, especially through the first part of this, this letter that, that Paul is really trying to impress upon them that, hey, we're, we're in this relationship together. It's not me against you. There's some things we have to address, but, but we're family. We've got to take care of this. There, there's, there's some conflict there and we've got to deal with it. We're not going to ignore it and we're not going to go about it in a, in an unrighteous way. And so part of what he's doing in writing this letter is working to, to resolve this in a way uh, that would honor and bring glory to God. And so this last statement here in verse 24 may seem a little bit out, out of place. Uh, and you could go a couple different ways with this. But it says uh, in the ESV, it says, For you stand firm in your faith. Uh, and, and it comes as though Paul is giving them a, a very strong compliment. And he may Paul may exactly be trying to communicate just that. That in, in certain ways they have stood strong in their faith. Uh, I tend to think that the NIV um, communicates this in a little different way. And I think it's that it is by faith that they stand firm. He's trying to encourage them. It's faith in Christ that they stand firm. It's not faith in Paul or any other man. And Paul himself says, I, I don't have the authority to, to lord over you how you behave or how you treat one another or how you exercise your faith in Christ. Your faith is in Christ and the only foundation that you have is for that. You stand firm in that alone. Uh, I like John Calvin's comments on this passage. He says this, faith should be completely free of any bondage to men. We should know well who it is that says this. For if ever any mortal man had a right to claim such lordship, Paul was he. Thus we conclude that faith should have no master but the word of God and is not subject to human control. Spiritual lordship belongs to none but God alone. This is always a settled principle that pastors have no special lordship over men's consciences, consciences because they are ministers and helpers and not lords. Paul, again, he's not backpedaling in any way. He's, he's making it very clear what could have happened and what would have happened had he arrived at the time that they anticipated. But that's not the point. 
He's not trying to just hammer them. He's not railing against this idea. Hey, guys, we're in this together, and we have to resolve this. So I've written you this letter. He continues in chapter 2. Uh, we're going to look at verses 1 through 4 here. Paul says, For I made up my mind not to make another painful visit to you. For if I cause you pain, who is there to make me glad but the one whom I have pained? And I wrote as I did, so that when I came, I might not suffer pain from those who should have made me rejoice. For I felt sure of all of you that my joy would be the joy of you all. For I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. Again, we see Paul affirms this idea that he's not wishy-washy about all of this. Remember last week that that part of uh, the chapter one where it's a he's talking about a yes, yes and a no, no, and that, that some are accusing him of not really knowing what he is, is vacillating, uh, going one way and then the next. And Paul assures them that he very clearly and purposely intentionally made a decision not to come to them. And he gives them reasons why Paul wants to visit Corinth. And at this point, I think he still intends to, but but he doesn't want to visit uh, and his visit to be one of pain, but rather joy. He doesn't want to cause them pain, and he doesn't want it to cause him pain. He, he, he hopes for the day that he can come and that that experience, when he visits, it'll be one of joy, that they can address these issues through, through the written word, through writing letters. I mean, we're, we're talking about a day where, where email wasn't a thing, right? Where the cloud didn't exist. There's no phone calls that if you want to communicate with somebody outside of a very close proximity, the only way you do so is through letters. And so this is a, a very common way for them to communicate. Uh, and so he's doing this, and his desire is not to see that when he comes, that it's, he's coming just to confront an issue, to likely confront sin, to bring about some type of uh, discipline, and everybody really just, just be upset. You've been in a situation like this one way or another. Whether it's at work, whether it's at school, whether it's a, a family get-together, uh, some type of friendship that you have that, that some way or another you're at odds with somebody. And you know that the next time you see them that it's going to be a, an awkward, difficult conversation. Now some of you are like, you know what, I have those things, those happen, and when they do, I just completely avoid it. I'm not doing it. Like, I'd write them a letter, but I ain't going to see them. Uh, or maybe you just say, I'm not going to even write them a letter. I can't deal with that type of conflict. It's just too much. Um, I'm someone who uh, can deal with conflict, but the thought of it, when I know that it's coming, man, it makes me it makes me nauseous. It makes me sick to my stomach. And so Paul cares deeply for this church. He cares deeply for these people. And he knows that when he comes at this time, that it's going to be an issue. And so he chooses here to write, not to cause them more pain, because ultimately Paul's trying to resolve this. He's not coming to, to pound them into the ground and say, you did this, 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 and this, and now you have to turn and do this, 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 and this, and, and whatever type of punishment it may be, and everybody just sit around and sulk and be angry and say, you know what, we don't even need you, Paul. It's not his intention. It's not what he wants to do. We, we see this as this whole letter begins. He's reminding them of, of this closeness that they have, this shared experience of suffering that they have, the shared, the shared experience of comfort that they have in Christ. And so even the fact that it, it's going to be awkward, uh, uncomfortable, um, 
that there's going to be tension there, I, I think that it, it even goes beyond that for Paul. I think uh, a heartfelt sentiment seems, seems too, uh, uh, too simple. That he's not as concerned about an awkward reunion uh, where a few folks are going to be upset with him. Because I think that Paul's real joy that he would experience, the real joy that he speaks of, even the pain that he speaks of would be related to this. But what he's, what he's pursuing, what he wants to see is Paul wants to see that this body of believers, that this family of faith at Corinth, that they would submit to God's will in advancing the gospel and bring glory to God. What would bring Paul the greatest joy is to see this happen at this church. And he knows that right now might not be the best time for me to roll up in there. And so he chooses to go this route and write this letter at this particular time. Paul wrote, as he did, ultimately to bring joy instead of pain. To express his abundant love, he says. And as we'll see in the next section, he even, he even wants to test their obedience to some degree. So as we move to that next section, it's, uh, verses 5 through 11, I want to, to begin with kind of a little bit of a, uh, maybe not a disclaimer, but I, I want to address an issue here uh, before we even go into it. So as you read through First and Second Corinthians, uh, inevitably you're going to have some questions. Whether you're a, a scholar, a theologian, a seminary student, or you're in a Sunday school class, as you walk your way through these two letters, really as you walk your way through all of Scripture, you find yourself asking questions. And one of the most common questions with these two letters is, did Paul write more? Are there other letters that were written, or is this it? Um, how many did he write? Is it just the two? Is there three, four, five? What, what's going on here? There seems to be something else at play. And then the question is, well, how does that affect what we have? Does that in some way uh, bring about um, disdain or does it, does it call into question the authenticity of the Bible? Simply put, the answer is no. But let's look at this for just a second. Um, this particular section, section you're going to see this really comes up. And as you begin to dive into it, the question arises is who is Paul speaking to in this section? You'll see as we read it here in one moment. Uh, which then brings the question, well, is there another letter or maybe not, or what is it? So it does seem that Paul wrote more than two letters to the Corinthians. We clearly have two that were preserved, uh, which we refer to as First and Second Corinthians. However, in First Corinthians uh, chapter 5, verse 9, Paul says this. He says, I wrote to you in my letter. Now, that's First Corinthians. That's what we have called First Corinthians. And he says, I wrote to you in my letter. So either Paul is talking about the very letter he's writing at that moment or some other letter that he wrote prior to that. I don't know. The most logical explanation to me is that he wrote another letter prior to that one, uh, that he's writing at that time, and uh, thus indicating that 1 Corinthians may not actually be 1 Corinthians as we know it, uh, that there was other written correspondence to the church at Corinth. Now, does that change anything? No. Is it absurd to think that Paul wrote more than one or two letters, or the letters that we have preserved in Scripture? Of course not. And we mentioned already that this is the most common way of communicating with anybody at a distance. So it's very reasonable to think that Paul wrote many more letters than that. So this in no way calls the Bible or Paul's letters into question. There's just simply more correspondence that wasn't preserved. And so ultimately, I think we can rest in the fact that if if that correspondence was necessary for you and I to to live, if it was necessary for our ability to live out the Christian life, then God would have preserved 
that correspondence. But we have exactly what we need according to God's plan. So we can trust in that. But it does cause us then to wrestle with certain questions. It causes us to ask, well, who is this person? Was there another letter? What was Paul's intent at this particular time? Which are good questions for us to ask because it allows us the gives us the ability uh, to to really dig into those and understand what was Paul communicating, not just assuming we know or we understand everything, but taking some uh, a very close look and examination of what that is. And so here the big question in verses five through eleven is who is Paul talking to? Uh, and there's really three. Uh, primary uh, positions that people hold on this. One, people say it's just the person in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. So we're not going to turn there and look at it. Um, simply put, uh, Paul is addressing someone there in the church, uh, a man who has slept with his father's wife. And he deals with that in a very stern fashion. And so some assume that this is the guy we're talking about. Uh, the second one is that some hold that um, 2 Corinthians is actually Two books, the chapters 10 through 13, were actually written before chapters 1 through 9. Uh, and that that is what he's referencing. But that doesn't make a ton of sense. Uh, there's an argument to be made. And then the third is that there was another letter written between First and Second Corinthians, addressing a more specific issue uh, that Paul had with an individual that was really personal in nature. So... As we look at this, as we read through this, this is this third position, this position that another letter was written. That's the perspective that I'm approaching this text with. And so as as you look at this, as you hear me speak, that's that's how we're looking at this. So let me give you one more text here to to again kind of confirm this idea that Paul has written more letters. Colossians four sixteen B says this and see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. I'm going to give you guys just a minute. I know I can't see you, and I don't know what's really going on, but I want you to take your Bible, and I want you to turn to the letter of Laodicea. Go ahead. Take just a minute. I'm on camera. We can, I can wait all day right now. So you guys look, and you're going to find clearly, obviously, that there's not one, that those letters were written. Paul, Paul makes it clear that he wrote this letter to these churches, and he wants uh, these letters to be circulated. But these weren't preserved. So clearly, it's common knowledge that we don't have all of Paul's letters. All of his written correspondence has not been preserved. And in the context of what we're going to read now, now that I've made you wait long enough, I think makes it evident that there was something else, another letter, there was another issue at play here. So verse 5 of chapter 2. Now, if anyone has caused pain, he's caused it not to me, but in some measure... Not to put it too severely to all of you. For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him. Or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. For this is why I wrote that I might test test you and know whether you are, are obedient in everything. Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I have forgiven... If I've forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. So again, Paul is using language to unite them together. Sure, someone may have said something to offend me, Paul is saying, but he's saying it's not just me. 
that that person has hurt us all. He says, I, I don't want to put it too severely. I don't, I don't want to exaggerate this, but, but this offense has affected all of us. It's caused us all pain. It's caused us all grief to some degree. And judging by Paul's comments in verse 6, that, that the majority has in some way levied some type of punishment, whatever that may be. But Paul suggests that's enough. Now it's time to forgive, to reaffirm your love. He says, I beg you. I, I beg you to forgive this person, to bring them back in. They, we don't want them to be overwhelmed with, with excessive grief or sorrow as a result of what was happened. It, it happened and, and it shouldn't have happened, but we've dealt with it. We've addressed it. I've forgiven them. You should forgive them. Because we're, we're looking to resolve this. This is an issue that, that, that we can deal with. And as a, as a body of Christ, we have to deal with because we don't want to be outsmarted outwitted we don't we don't want satan to exploit our own circumstances and use those against us in a way to cause greater division to stall what the church is doing and in and in no way honor god by our actions and the way that we treat one another we cannot be be exploited by satan for this we have to forgive one another this is who we are as believers we're we're built on this idea of forgiveness that we were forgiven by christ and so there was an offense We've, we've addressed it. There's been some type of discipline in some fashion. We don't know the extent of that. And we forgive them. And we bring them back into the fold. Now this is significant. I, I think it's difficult in some ways here for us in, in the American, like the Western culture, for us to even understand the significance of community in the way that they would have at this time. Really, even uh, for much of human history, uh, or even what's happening in, in many cultures today, the, the idea of community, we're so independent as Americans. We're, we're so single-minded that, that I take care of myself, and I do for myself, uh, and you take care of yourself, and, and we don't let the two really cross. That's your deal, this is my deal, and let's, let's don't let anything happen in between. And Paul, Paul is going to great lengths really to say, hey, look, this offended me, this hurt me, this caused me pain, but it caused it for you too. We're, we're a body of believers. We're very connected in this. That this relationship that we have has been established by God in Christ, that we've been anointed, sealed with the Holy Spirit as a guarantee. This is not just something for you over here and you over here, but, but when we sin against one another, when we have conflict with one another, especially in the church, that, that it hurts the whole church. And we can't continue to go that way without dealing with these issues. We can't, one, sweep them under the rug and act as if they didn't happen or they're not there and we're just going to kind of go on about our way. But we can't come in with a, with a heavy hand looking to, to just bring the hammer on everybody who offends us or sins against us in some way. Because, because in reality, is, is we all sin. And so if you've sinned against me at this particular time, at some point, probably I'm going to sin against you. So the way that we deal with that speaks a lot to the world about the God that we serve and the forgiveness that we've experienced. So on that note, let's unpack just a moment some of the kind of application to this. And I want to give you just three takeaways from this text this morning. Everything for Paul is about the cross. About living a cross-shaped life. 
So let's ask the question then. How does the cross shape the way we deal with conflict? How does the cross shape the way that you deal with conflict in your life? Whether it's at work, whether it's in your family, whether it's on the road driving somewhere, whether it's a a close friendship or a distant acquaintance. How does the cross determine the way that you deal with that conflict? One, if we're allowing the cross to shape the way that we deal with conflict, then our desire to be righteous should outweigh our need to be right. Our desire to be righteous should outweigh our need to be right. That's difficult. Especially as somebody who likes to be right. Sorry, I just smacked the mic if that blew up in your ear. If, if you're somebody who just has to be right all the time, man, it, it's hard. Because that's what you want. You don't want to be wrong. and You don't want somebody else to be right because then maybe it makes you look foolish. But that's your greatest desire is to be right at all costs. But as we allow the cross to form our lives, to shape our lives, then we see that there has to be some significant change in that. Paul was right. Paul was right in all that he was doing. But his, his greatest desire was not only to be right, but to respond in a righteous way. To share the truth but to do so lovingly and kindly in a way that would draw them closer to the Savior, not in a way that would push them away from the Savior. Two, uh, life being shaped by the cross when facing conflict will seek correction and discipline over pride and punishment. This is difficult as well. When somebody wrongs us, when somebody offends us in some way, the the most logical thing we think in our mind, one, our, our pride gets involved, and two, we want to see that person punished. We want to make sure this never happens again. Uh, maybe, maybe we go so over the top that, that they could never possibly make this mistake. They would never sin against us again this way because they've offended us, and I, I can't have that. I can't be embarrassed. But a life that's shaped by the cross is not looking for that. A life that's shaped by the cross is maybe looking for correction, and discipline. But it's, it's discipline that's driven by love. Paul, Paul expresses his, his great love for them. That he spent uh, many tears. He was in anguish and pain. Crying over this as he's writing this letter. That, that the discipline that would be brought about is driven by love. It's not by ego. It's not by position. It's not by the authority that you have. It's not by punishment. Like you can apply this in a lot of different ways. You can apply this if you're a, uh, someone at your work that you're a supervisor, even if it's uh, maybe one or two employees or maybe you're a, a supervisor of a large department. How do you serve the people that work for you? How do you deal with conflict there when you say, well, this is my position and I have the authority to, to bring this type of punishment? Are you someone who just throws your power around? Paul, Paul could have done that here, but he didn't. Maybe in your home. Uh, I'm a dad. I got four kids. Uh, and there are times that my ego as the man of the house, as the father of the house, gets in the way of the way I discipline my own children or the way that I speak to my wife because this is who I am. I'm the man of the house. This is a very, a very small place, but these are the people that I love the most. And even there, my, my ego can, can take over. And I'm, I'm not looking for correction or for discipline, but my pride puffs me up. 
And I look for punishment. I look for a way to ensure that this never happens again. A life shaped by the cross seeks correction. It's driven by love. And then third, if the way we resolve conflict is shaped by the cross, then reconciliation is always the goal. That reconciled relationships over exiled enemies. Just because somebody wrongs you doesn't make them your enemy. Especially, we're thinking about Paul here speaking to brothers and sisters in Christ in the church. How often do we see this in churches? You maybe experienced it or been a part of it that someone within the church wrongs you and now all of a sudden they're your enemy. We've got to get rid of them. That's not what Paul's pursuing here. Paul's pursuing reconciliation. Reconciliation is always the goal. We'll see even as we go through 2 Corinthians that, that we've been given the ministry of reconciliation. Yet sometimes it's far easier for us to, to look to exile and to remove than to deal with the issue in a way that is righteous and loving. One of the commentators that I was studying this week said this, and I think it's a, a good overview of the whole thing. He says, Lambasting others may make us feel better for a while and may even rouse cheers from observers, but fierce denunciations rarely help. In dealing with his problem children, Paul chose the way of the cross, which in this case was through weeping. How often do you weep for the soul of the one that's offended you? When you find yourself in that type of conflict, in that type of relationship where someone's sinned against you or maybe maybe they didn't really but you just kind of got your feelings hurt but you're weeping over this relationship because your greatest desire is to see joy that's brought through submission to god so that you and them can work together as a part of the body of christ to advance the gospel to see the kingdom grow and to bring glory and honor to your lord let's pray father we thank you so much for your word Lord, that you have preserved this for us so that we can turn to it, so that we don't have to guess about who you are, what you're like, what you desire. That we can look at the lives of, 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 of great men and women throughout Scripture, that we can look at the lives of believers, that we can see uh, oftentimes the many great things that they did, but Lord, that we can look and see how they didn't handle things right always. God, that we have this here to turn and to look at. Father, I pray that as we spend time with this text, as we allow it to, to really soak into our lives, as we think about relationships that we have right now, that maybe there's some conflict, maybe there's a little bit of tension there, that, that there's issues that have been brewing, and maybe, maybe we haven't dealt with them right, or maybe we haven't dealt with them all. God, I pray that you would give us the courage and the boldness to, to deal with those issues. But God, I pray that you would also give us the compassion and the gentleness to do so in a loving fashion. Lord, may we honor you in all of our relationships. And may we allow your word to, to reach into the depths of our heart, to shape us, to form us, to, to mold us, that the cross would, would continue to sanctify us, making us more, turning us more, shaping us more into the image of your son. And we pray all these things in his name. Amen. Have a good week, guys.